0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: This episode is brought to you by 100 Bogart Street. Do you need a conference room for your next meeting? Learn more by visiting 100bogart.com.
2: This is Coral, host of Meant to Be Eaten on Heritage Radio Network. I've been a part of the HRN community for two years, and even after all that time, I'm constantly inspired by the incredible voices of our network. Each week, I record my show in the HRN studio, made from two recycled shipping containers, because I'm excited to bring you, our listeners, the most important stories existing at the intersection of food and culture. All of us here at HRN make food radio because we love it. This year, HRN is celebrating its 10th anniversary, but we need your support to keep food radio going strong for the next decade. Join the HRN community today by becoming a member. Go to heritageradio.network.org/slash/donate right now. You can even show some love for my show by selecting "Meant to Be Eaten" in the designation drop-down menu. Thanks for listening to HRN. This is "Meant to Be Eaten" on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Coralie. Maggie Gray, Sarah Horton, and Angela Stisi, all authors on books concerning food politics, will share their respective approaches to analyzing immigrant workers' contested and changing roles in the U.S. food system with me today. With the growing trend of mindful, sustainable consumption, as Maggie Gray writes, now is the perfect time for foodies to consider the laborer. Thank you all for joining me today. Thanks. Thank Thank you for having us. So, um, first, we'll start with Maggie. Can each of you introduce yourselves and your respective area of focus?
3: Sure. I'm Maggie Gray. I'm an associate professor at Adelphi University, and I study New York State farm workers, primarily looking at the power dynamic both on the farm and in terms of policy and legislative representation.
4: Okay. And Sarah? Yeah. um, I'm Sarah. Horton. I'm an Associate Professor of Anthropology at the University of Colorado, Denver. My areas of specialization include immigration, labor, and health. And I conducted uh, ten years of intensive fieldwork in a farmworking community in Central California, where I interviewed over sixty farm workers, a number of labor supervisors, food safety experts, and labor advocates about labor conditions.
2: Mm-hmm. And lastly, Angela,
5: Hi, I'm Angela Sisi, and I'm a cultural anthropologist at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. and the author of Scratching Out a Living, Latinos, Race, and Work in the Deep South, which looks at the development of the poultry industry in the United States. In half a century, the poultry industry has transformed into one of the most highly specialized and labor-intensive forms of industrial agriculture in the world. And based on six years of engaged research, in rural Mississippi's poultry region. um, My research considers not only why these changes took place, but also how they unfolded and with what consequences.
2: Great. So our topics at hand um, were actually suggested to me by a lot of listeners, um, a lot of people know that, quote unquote, immigration labor is a problem, but they don't really know where to start or where to, or what to even think about it. So um, each of you are very steeped in the issues we're talking about today. But before we dive in, can each of you kind of explain what issues are riddling our system and how each of your approaches um, tackle said issues?
3: I'm sure it's start. This is Maggie Gray. So my book, *Labor and the Locavore*, and I just want to point out all of our books are published by the University of California Press. Um, one of the things I focused on are conditions on what we consider to be local farms. New York has a relatively small size of farms, and because of the metropolitan market, we have a lot of direct to consumer between farmers markets and agritourism. And I think most people have heard about conditions on what they consider to be more industrial farms um, and are somewhat aware of that, particularly because of Cesar Chavez and um, United Farm Workers. People are much less aware that all the same labor conditions exist on really small farms. So One of the things my book does is really push foodies in particular to think, what does sustainability mean? Um, There's so much that's wonderful about local food, um, but we really need to ask them serious questions about the sustainability of a workforce that's excluded from very specific labor laws, such as the right to overtime pay, the right to a day of rest, and collective bargaining protections. Um, and right now in New York State, the state legislature is considering the Farmworker Fair Labor Practices Act, which would give farmworkers the same rights as other minimum wage workers. Um, and it's, it, so many people are conflicted because on the one hand, you've got a human rights issue, and on the other hand, you've got farm, farm owners who are saying that they just they can't afford this. Um, And so it's about the economics of farms. And I think that there's right now a lot of really um, interesting op-eds coming out across the state, largely from the farmer perspective. Um, And they do try to remind legislators that even though farm workers are largely undocumented, um, they're not donating to their campaigns, they're not voting, New York has upwards of 58,000 farm workers who should be considered their constituents as well.
1: Mm
2: -hmm. And Angela? Um, So I mentioned that my
5: work has been on the poultry industry. And during the 1980s and 90s, Americans' consumption of our favorite white meat escalated tremendously. Um, So the industry, which is located primarily in the U.S. South, Embraced globalization and began began recruiting immigrant workers at unprecedented rates. Um, so as the industry consolidated and production was "quote unquote" de-skilled and sped up, management sought to reduce costs by increasing the supply of available workers. Uh, and they did this um, by recruiting immigrant workers. In the case of Mississippi, from across Latin America. Um, and by the year 2000, over half of the country's quarter million poultry workers were immigrants. So I think when you're asking sort of what are the big, the big problems in the system, um, you know, this we're, our industrial food system is really set up on uh, the exploitation of racialized bodies, and the industry sort of augments and and encourages these sorts of um, perceptions of difference and incompatibility across different workforces, black and brown bodies mostly um, in order to keep worker organizing at bay and keep labor prices low so that we can buy cheap chicken.
2: And Sarah?
4: Yeah, so my work focuses on labor conditions in larger agricultural companies in California Central Valley. And Maggie mentioned that You have this uh, policy of agricultural exceptionalism in the United States where farm workers are exempt from the standard labor protections that prevail in most other industries. And so my work really looks at a disturbing casualty of this kind of agricultural exceptionalism, which is the very high rate of heat stroke among American farm workers. So farm workers die from heat at a rate higher than workers in any other industry including construction workers, and immigrant farm workers are at particular risk. So my work examines the different labor policies that play a role in this, including this legacy of agricultural exceptionalism, as well as the way that immigration policy and our healthcare policies all make farm workers particularly at risk of heat stroke.
2: And so this is a question to you three. Um, I feel like a, mis, mis, a common misconception or fear um, is that immigrants are stealing American jobs and why is this a popular, persistent narrative and what's actually happening? What's the reality?
3: I think the Maybe jobs that we're talking about, this is Maggie, right? What well, I hear certainly from farmers is that it's extremely difficult to recruit local workers. Um, Because the fact is, if you don't have a right overtime pay, if you have to work um, in, you know, in the fields in California in this incredible heat, or New York has very varied weather as well, I know that some of Angela's workers that she interviewed are also working in crazy temperatures in the meatpacking factories, and this is pretty extreme physical labor, um, and what the owners will largely tell you is that these Latin Americans have what they call a work ethic. Um, and I remember interviewing someone from my work who said that he heard that again and again, this idea that the Latinx population had this incredible work ethic. And he said that he thought that that was pretty, uh, he, I think he used the word racialized. He didn't want to say racist. Um. Because the fact is that most of these workers are just so desperate that they don't complain. And I think one of the things we need to understand is that all of the workers that we've looked at are extremely vulnerable. Um, and that vulnerability means they tend not to speak up. They tend to not complain. Um, or if they... have have had the experience of speaking up or asking for something to change, and then it doesn't happen. So it can be extremely demoralizing experience, and the same way that Angela pointed out that the meatpacking industry sought out vulnerable workers to replace previous workers Um, They're doing that very intentionally because they know these workers are going to work extremely hard and not complain. And, you know, one of the things that's a hallmark of this country is that the democratic spirit and we have these incredible labor legislation that cover most workers. And if you're a citizen, chances are you're not afraid to stand up for your own right. Um, But again and again, we see scenarios where workers in the food industry, particularly those who are new immigrants, are just so vulnerable that they're afraid to speak up.
2: Yeah, I want to continue unpacking this. In what ways are they vulnerable?
3: Sarah or Angela, do you want to take that on?
4: Sure. I'd be happy to. Go ahead. Um, So this is Sarah. So um, in one of my folk I in looking at agriculture in California was the ways that employers actually manipulate workers' lack of legal status to ensure that they are particularly vulnerable and don't speak up to protest labor abuses. And one of the very disturbing things that happens in agriculture, and has also been documented in meatpacking, is that uh, labor supervisors often encourage workers who lack legal status to work under the work authorization papers of others. Um, so either they'll suggest that workers who are undocumented borrow the work authorization papers of their family or friends, or in some cases, these labor supervisors actually provide workers with work authorization documents. And so this happened during this um, very famous raid of a meatpacking plant in Postville, Iowa where 389 workers were arrested and prosecuted for aggravated identity theft, Um, and this was in 2008. And it surfaced later that, in fact, some of the human resource personnel were actually providing workers with the work authorization documents that the federal government requires. And what's so disturbing and interesting about this, of course, is that, in a sense, these um, employers or labor supervisors are giving workers forcible identity loans. Um, so they're requiring that they work under these documents, for example, um, in order to have a job. And this makes them particularly exploitable because they can be prosecuted, like these postal workers, uh, for identity theft. So labor supervisors have invented very ingenious ways to manipulate workers' lack of legal status. And in agriculture, um They do this in many cases to actually disguise their violation of not only immigration laws by hiring undocumented workers, but also their violation of labor laws. So, for example, in agriculture, it's not uncommon for labor supervisors, for example, to evade um, overtime laws, which actually exist in a very um, attenuated form in California. Farm workers are allowed to have overtime once they work in excess of 60 hours a week. So labor supervisors actually require that workers work under these loaned documents on Sundays so that the state is totally unaware that they actually are due overtime. Um, So these are ways that um, this particularly vulnerable workforce winds up... um, creating more profit for employers because they're able to exploit their, their vulnerability through these forcible identity loans.
2: And how are these documents, um, how are they sourced and how are they able to
4: continue using them? Yeah, for sure. So in some cases, labor supervisors are just you know suggesting that workers borrow like, a friend or a family member's paper, but that still puts the worker at risk, right? And also makes them completely invisible um, for example, if they were to get injured on the job, it makes them disappear from the list of rostered workers who are covered by their workers' compensation insurance. Um, in other cases, the labor supervisors are actually getting work authorization documents from their own friends and family. So they get a little bit of a cut while their friends and family get money sunk into not only their Social Security accounts, but also into their um, unemployment accounts, which is a really important source um, of assistance for California farm workers. So there's these yeah, ways that essentially employers are able to evade federal labor laws and also make additional profit for themselves and their friends and family because of the vulnerability of these undocumented workers.
2: Mm-hmm. Angela, so in your book, you write about um, this kind of discourse around, quote-unquote, lazy black folks who don't want to work and, quote-unquote, hardworking immigrants with a strong work ethic. And on the flip side, um, what makes a, quote-unquote, good farm worker? How are farm workers forced to assimilate, and why are they discouraged from becoming American?
5: Yeah, well, I think it's important to think a little bit more about this question of labor shortage or or hard workers, um, which Maggie brings up. So in, um, in the context of the poultry industry, which is largely rooted in the U.S. South, the production of the chicken that we eat has always been sort of racialized in different ways. And so part of the story that I tell in Scratching Out a Living is that until the 1960s, the poultry industry refused to hire, Af- hire African-Americans. And it was thanks to the momentum of the civil rights movement that the plant in Mississippi eventually ceded to black demands for work opportunities. Uh, and in fact, at one Mississippi plant, within a week of opening to African-American workers, the white women who had staffed the area's processing lines since World War II had abandoned their jobs, refusing to work alongside black folks. Um, so by the end of the decade, Mississippi's poultry workforce had become majority African-American, And it was precisely when these black workers began to organize it uh, at their places of employment that the employers started looking further afield for labor. Uh, In Mississippi, one company started recruiting immigrants in South Florida. So that's why people were coming from over a dozen different countries across the continent. Uh, But rather than acknowledging sort of their investment in keeping unions out, because this was a time of expansion, of the industry, management justified their search for labor in terms of a labor shortage. Um, and so, I just think we need to think carefully about this term, because in the context of immigration, it's often coupled with these discourses that you mentioned, Coral, all of mm-hmm. lazy African American folks who don't want to work, quote unquote, don't want to work, and this sort of the hardworking immigrants um, juxtaposes it, right. Mm-hmm. So the discourses around immigrants stealing jobs or being hard workers are
2: racialized. Um, right, and stuff. so we kind of touched on this earlier, but to telescope even more out, and that while this seems like a rather obvious question, why is it that racialized and subordinated groups primarily or disproportionately make up the labor force in our food system? Why has this become the norm for so long?
5: This is Angela. Should I start? Sure. Um, I mean, I think that there are two reasons for this. One is that capitalism rewards a corporate race to the bottom. So corporations produce and sell our food and their eye is always on the bottom line. And that this incentive, this system incentivizes finding ways to produce food cheaply in order to maximize profits, right? Sort of cutting costs at all costs. The most variable expense in food production is the cost of labor. And how can corporations decrease labor costs? By keeping expenses associated with, their, with its production and shipping and warehousing and selling and serving of our food as low as possible. Um, so they do this by limiting workers' bargaining power, by compensating workers as little as possible, and minimizing the cost of workers' health and safety needs. And we know that capitalism relies on racialized, gendered, minoritized bodies to cut costs. Industrial food production, as Maggie mentioned earlier, is backbreaking, dangerous, low paid work, and Sarah mentioned um, heat illness. So, because of the structural inequalities related to race, class, and gender and citizenship status, many who work at sort of the base of our food system don't have a lot of better employment options. And the corporations that hire them are transferring as much of the risk uh, associated with capitalist food production onto their very bodies. And I don't think this changes because we as consumers and workers and shareholders are complicit with the system Mm -hmm. that
2: provides us with cheap food. Sarah and Maggie, did you want to add?
3: Yeah, if I can build on that. So I think this is also going back to that question of this perception that they're taking jobs away from Americans. there is such a long history of reliance on cheap labor, cheap immigrant labor in this country, right? So it's almost part of the way capitalism has developed, particularly in industries where you don't have to have a significant skill set in order to come into the job. I'm, I'm going to tell you, farm work and meatpacking is certainly a skilled work, but it's skills that people tend to learn on the job. So. I think one of the things is that you are not looking for somebody with a skill set. You're not looking for someone who's going to be advancing um, into management positions. You really just want a class of workers that can can be these labor inputs. I think um, the way Angela put it was very good. And I think the idea that we have to keep in mind constantly is that It's much less about the immigrants taking jobs from Americans and more so the employers who are seeking out these workers and consciously not hiring other types of workers. And I think the other really important legacy to keep in mind, particularly when we talk about agricultural workers, is the legacy of slavery, right? Because the southern... Economy was wholly dependent on slave labor, um, and it's re- it's related to some of what we've already touched on. The at a federal level, farm workers don't have a right to overtime pay, a day of rest, collective bargaining. Um, as Sarah pointed out, in California, um, overtime kicks in after 60 hours, if if it's being tracked properly, that is. Um, yeah, and most states adopted these same standards. And the reason why agricultural workers were left out of these labor laws was because how strong the Southern Democrats were during the New Deal period when these laws were being passed. And I think that again, it was very racialized legislation that left agricultural workers out because of the dependence on cheap labor. Um, So, yeah, I think that these, but I mean, this is also the story of um, garment workers in this country, right? When New York was the major manufacturing for clothing, and and we know, of course, and we have to factor into this as well, that a lot of food needs to be produced right here in the U.S. because of its perishability. But where possible, almost every other manufacturing industry has left this country largely because of seeking cheaper labor.
4: I'll add just two things to what um, Maggie and Angela said. I think they did a great job. Um, As both Angela and Maggie have pointed out, Employers um, have played a large role in recruiting immigrant workers to fill these spots. And of course, in agriculture, the, you know, the most massive and famous example of this was the Bracero program, um, where the state actually facilitated um, and created a program, the United States' uh, largest guest worker program, that imported 4.6 million Mexican men to work in the United States, in railroads and in agriculture, and this existed, you know, because of the of the uh, lack of workers during the World War II, between 1942 and 1964. And so, the fact that California's agricultural labor force is largely immigrant and largely Latino is, is of course, a direct consequence of the Bracero Program. So, I think it's really important to point to the really strong role of the federal government in recruiting these workers into agriculture and establishing these networks that would continue to draw in immigrants even after the Bracero program ended. Um, And I think a second important point is also the hiddenness of many of of these jobs um, in the food industry. If we think about workers working in the back of a kitchen, for example, We think about farms, which tend to be in secluded rural areas, so that um, many in the American public are unaware of the kinds of conditions that do prevail on these farms, um, especially in the smaller farms, um, as Maggie has discussed. And so the the hiddenness of this kind of work makes the kind of scholarship and and documentary journalism that uh, scholars and investigators do to reveal these conditions, particularly important. This is
2: Meant to Be eaten on Heritage Radio Network. We'll be back after a short break.
1: This episode is brought to you by 100 Bogart, a new building in Bushwick, Brooklyn, that provides offices, co-working, event spaces, and a brand new podcast recording room. Have you been dreaming of starting your very own podcast in Brooklyn? You can now rent space in 100 Bogart's custom-built podcast room to record interviews, voiceover, and commentary. The room is fitted out with two microphones, mixing board, and a MacBook Pro running Pro Tools. You can rent the space by the hour, and a rental of an hour or more includes a 100 Bogart co-working pass. That means complimentary coffee, tea, and access to your own desk for the rest of the day. So what are you waiting for? Get started on your next audio project. 100 Bogart has the space and amenities you need to kickstart your podcast. Learn more at 100bogart.com or call their team at 718-362-3539. Hey, are you
6: enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. My name is Kathy Irway, and I'm the host of Eat Your Words here on HRN. Every week I sit down with food writers to talk about their newest work— from colorful cookbooks to food memoirs to exposés on the food industry. It's all meaty topic for discussion. You can find Eat Your Words wherever you listen to podcasts and on Heritage Radio Network.org.
2: And we're back. We were just talking about the kind of misnomer of a quote-unquote good farm worker, um, that they're not necessarily good, but just more desperate and... Um, do not have any other choice but to complete some of this backbreaking work. And so I wanted to talk a bit more, not so much about the physical conditions, but maybe the emotional, intellectual, and maybe social impact on these immigrants that are then also working to assimilate and incorporate into good old America. So, Maggie, Angela, or Sarah, do you want to comment on the persistence of racial stereotypes placed upon the Black and Latino worker communities, e.g., we got into this a bit earlier, but um, being typecasted as hardworking or lazy?
3: Yeah, I think our research very much overlaps. Um, I also found people talked about Black workers as being lazy, um, and an idea that you don't want your Latinx workers to become too Americanized. I heard that in more than one interview. Um, And the concern was that if they get experience in another type of job, particularly construction, and then come back again, then they have more of an attitude. Um, And... You know, on the one hand, you can understand why an why an employer would want what they consider to be good workers. On the other hand, if a good worker is someone who's afraid to speak up, there can be serious implications of this. Uh, As Sarah pointed out, there have been fatalities due to the heat out in California, Um, and on New York dairy farms, there was a, a significant number of fatalities. I heard directly from workers who felt that they didn't have appropriate safety and health training, that they were new to jobs, that they didn't feel that because they were Spanish speaking and the owners were English speaking, that there was the language barrier played a role there. Um, But I think that when you have workers who are afraid to speak up, um, it means that the work is also not going to be as productive. Um, It always strikes me, if you read management literature, you know, sort of popular management literature, particularly for the tech world, a lot of it really focuses on teamwork and how creativity will bubble from the ground up and how important it is that your employers feel that they have a stake in the business itself and how much you'll benefit from that. And I have, I've just not seen that attitude very much at all in, um, New York farm work. For the most part, workers will report feeling very disrespected, um, and that they're, they're wanted for their labor, but for nothing else. Um, I heard a Jamaican worker once told me that you had to cover up your smarts because they just, they just want you to do what they say and they don't want your opinion at all. Um, so, I, so I think some of it is really wrapped up in what's the downside for the business in terms of health and safety issues and in terms of productivity and in terms of creativity when you cannot foster an environment where you want your workers to speak out.
2: Yeah, Sarah, can
5: you... Oh, go ahead, Sarah. Oh, was that Angela? Oh, I thought you were starting to speak. I was thinking about your work as Maggie was talking. I can say why and then segue to you. Yeah, go ahead. Um, Well, I was thinking about sort of this tension between embracing one's identity as a good worker because it's sort of the only identity that validates you in the eyes of sort of dominant society in the U.S. Um, And what Maggie's pointing out, tensions of, you know, being thinking, creative people as well, right, that the rest of of farm often farm workers or food system workers, humanity isn't really uplifted or recognized. Um, I noticed in the case of Mississippi that Latinos were sort of championing their identities as good workers even while they were identifying the structural inequalities that put them in that position. Um, and I think it it makes me think of Sarah Horton's work uh, on sort of what happens to farm worker health when people can only be recognized as good workers. I guess that's, that's what I was thinking, right. Sarah.
4: Right. No. Thanks for that opening. That's so true. Um, I think that That's one thing that workers, farm workers in California often told me was that, you know, they had to work even through the signs, the early signs of heat illness in order to keep their jobs. And so that's a really clear example of the um, disturbing health implications and obviously emotional implications, too, of being forced to really just, um, just to disregard your health in order to bring home a salary to the family um, and avoid being fired. So the really high rate of heat stroke among farm workers is in fact, you know, a really clear example of the legacy of farm workers and, and immigrant workers in the food industry in general being forced to really prize their work capacity. Yeah.
5: And in the case of my work in Mississippi, a fair amount of it was with African-American workers who were sort of grappling with how to organize their workplace in a context where they now were working alongside a fair number of folks who didn't speak English well, who didn't have speakers, um, and had sort of a critical view of this idea of Latinx workers as being good hard workers, right, because they saw this sort of as um, management's justification for lowering wages and higher levels of mistreatment in the plants, right, and um, how this played into the management of industrial food processing limiting workers' power.
2: Yeah, Angela, you made that really good point that there's this weird tension of unwillingly accepting this label of being a good farm worker and how um, do those stereotypes kind of affect the community from within and how does it affect their concept of self-identity, whether it's forged in or by the factory or not at all?
3: Can I chime in? Yes, please. So, one of the things I think I've certainly seen is that it, it would it's exhausting work and workers are certainly aware of the level of exploitation. But then to walk around with the identity of I'm a vulnerable exploited worker it makes everything that much worse. So I think whenever possible, workers are trying to identify with some positive aspect of what they spend the majority of their time doing, right? So we all want to take yeah. pride in our work. And I think some of it comes out that way. So it is a contradiction or a paradox, but I think it makes sense in a way because we all want to be feeling good about some aspects of our work, right? So I've I've seen the same thing where workers can be so proud of what they can accomplish.
2: Sarah and yeah. Angela, did you want to chime in?
4: My work has really been a on great sort of point. Um, well, go ahead. Stan. I do hear a lot of farm workers, particularly Ben, you know, um there's you know, there's competition among teams, for example, to harvest the most box of boxes of cantaloupe. Um, and when they're paid by piece rate, you know, that is for each box of cantaloupe they fill, that encourages them, of course, to associate um, their value, with the value that they're taking home as a team, so productivity becomes tied to self-worth. Um, and yet, you know, as Maggie and Angela pointed out, um, that is really just the consequence of these immigration and labor policies that encourage them to have this kind of identity. And there is also a an awareness of how exploited, um, and exploitative many of the labor conditions are. Um, and so I think that's why a lot of farm workers, you know, their dream is for their children, of course, to, to get out of farm work. And because many of their children, you, you know, are born in the U.S., um, do have legal status, um, English skills, you know, many of them can. Um, so it's kind of this, um, hope for their children not to have to be identified solely by their productivity or, or, capacity for backbreaking hard work.
2: Yeah, sorry, you also write about this internal divide within an ethnic community, how those who are more fortunate to leave farm work um, kind of take advantage of those who are not so well uh, lucky. So what are ethnic entrepreneurs?
4: And yeah, can you explain that? Yeah, so um, I think that uh, this phenomenon really shows the way that immigration policy can create these great divides within immigrant communities, and, and how when there's a real lack of opportunities for social mobility within very segregated immigrant communities, more established immigrants um, are able to, you know, seek out the one of the few sources of profit to them, which in some cases is to prey off of new arrivals, So in farm work, it's very common for the big agricultural companies to, of course, um, shift the responsibility for hiring a predominantly undocumented workforce to contractors, labor contractors. And in California, many of these labor contractors um, are Latino, and some were immigrants who just had the fortune of being in the United States in 1986 when our last major legalization program occurred, the Immigration Reform and Control Act. So these immigrants who were able to get legal status um, during the act were then able to get federal and state contracting licenses, which require legal status. So there's this interesting way that the um, immigration policies that create a large group of undocumented workers Um, allow others whether labor contractors or other employers to exploit these undocumented workers and it um, because of the lack of opportunities in immigrant communities many established immigrants really turn to exploiting more recent arrivals as a source of profit so in farm working communities um, it's very common for example for labor supervisors to charge workers for rides to and from work Um, really exorbitant fees, even though it's illegal. Um, They also, as I talked about earlier, may give workers identity documents that they're required to work um, as a condition of their employment. And these identity documents then create profit for the labor supervisors. So um, federal immigration policy can create these um, very strong divides within immigrant communities. that really benefit those who had the sheer luck of being present during um, 1986.
2: So, the uh, Maggie, you talk about how the farm owner actually has a great hand in shaping or shifting the demographic of a town um, due to the laborers that the farm owner takes on. Um, how should a responsible farm owner proceed? Is it simply a refusal of hiring immigrant laborers?
3: Uh, that's such a good question. So I, don't, I certainly don't think it's about refusal. And I think something to keep in mind is um, some of what we've mentioned here is about a level of exploitation that rises to breaking the law and to labor abuses. Um, but in so many situations, exploitation is not just about breaking the law, labor abuses. So, Coral, if you were to work on a New York State farm, you could work. 80 hours a week at just minimum wage and not have a right to a day of rest. That's perfectly legal. Um, Let's say you also felt that the tools you were given weren't appropriate and you and a couple of other workers went to see the boss and said, hey, could we get different tools here? You could actually be fired for just going and asking for that sort of change. Whereas in industries where you have collective bargaining protections, you can't be fired just for asking for a change. So I think one of the things I want to say is that um, there are plenty of farmers who are following the letter of the law, but I think we would describe those conditions as really exploitive. Um, And I think one of the things for farmers that can be really challenging is that because workers are reluctant to complain, um, sometimes I actually wonder if the farmers themselves really believe that their workers don't have any issues. Um, And so I think one thing farmers can do is work with other folks as mediators to try to really get a sense of what their workers need because of the level of the fear of the workers. And again, the fear that the workers experience, uh, and a large part due to their immigration status, the farmer never has to threaten deportation, right? But that that threat is always there, no matter, even if you have the most respectful employer. Um, so I think for farm owners, and I'm, I'm sure there are plenty of them out there, right? And I don't mean to characterize farm owners as, um, com- you know, completely wanting to disregard the interests of their workers, but the fact of the matter is that plenty of farmers may be going and paying above minimum wage and doing um, other things for their workers, such as providing transportation or free housing or free, free farm products, and I think one of the things that those farmers could do is recognize at the, the competitive disadvantage they are at because there's a farm down the road that might be growing the same vegetables that is paying only minimum wage and charging for housing and not giving transportation and not allowing for farm produce to be taken. So I think a lot of farmers um, understand that the way the law is structured, it's gonna perpetuate a poverty on behalf of the farm workers. And so they, they, they try to do what they can um, and and yet there are so many other farmers out there who don't. And the Farmworker Fair Labor Protections Act is something that would improve conditions for all farmworkers. Um, so, for example, there are plenty of farmers who say they could never pay overtime. But if they're already paying a couple of dollars over minimum wage, then they could easily just restructure the way they pay their workers to accommodate for overtime pay. Um, And unfortunately, I think it's very difficult for farmers to speak out on behalf of farm workers and farm worker rights um, because of the way the industry is organized and the way it's organized around these um, pretty strong agricultural organizations like the Farm Bureau or different grower associations. But I think for farmers who would be willing to reach out to, um, to those with more of a worker perspective to rethink their labor practices, I also think that there are a couple of new farmer and young farmer initiatives in New York State that could really benefit from trying to embrace a worker model that's not coming from a standard management perspective, but maybe, you know, bring in some labor advocates, bring in a labor union just to get advice about how to implement um, healthier and more sustainable labor practices.
2: Yeah, and lastly, a question for all three of you um, to consider the foodie. Why is simply eating healthfully and locally and asking where I should buy my food the wrong approach? How should responsible consumers proceed?
5: This is Angela. I would say you know, consumers often, when they think about um, eating healthfully and sort of the food movement or the locavore movement, as Maggie writes about, um, they're typically concerned with the environment. With public health and with animal welfare, but I think, you know, what does it mean to have a food system as part of a much larger system that more equitably distributes resources across all people? I think answering this question requires us, um, as consumers and as sort of ethical humans, to bring labor more centrally into the equation a long time alongside these other concerns. Um, So how can we ensure that workers in the food system can afford to feed their own families nutritious food? Uh, That they can go to work and come home with their bodies and spirits intact? uh, That they can organize collectively to negotiate the conditions of their employment? I think these are the types of questions that need to be at the heart of the movement for fair food and that need to be at the forefront of the minds of all of us who are eating food produced by extremely exploited people across the country and the world.
2: Sarah and Maggie?
3: So I can't help thinking about Angela's work and the fact that I can walk eight blocks to a Whole Foods in downtown Manhattan and buy a rotisserie chicken for $8, which just seems nuts that it's that inexpensive. And I can buy California strawberries all year round um, that are also really cheap. And I think one thing that we need to keep in mind as consumers is that we hear a lot about government subsidies to the agricultural industry, but the, the major subsidy to the food industry is the low wages and poor working conditions of these workers. Um, so in a sense, I think the first step is for consumers to really understand this. And I think this is where foodies have an edge, because if you look at the marketing today of organic and the marketing of local food, this is all in response to consumer demand. Um, and unfortunately, the, you know, occasionally there are some U.S.-grown tomatoes that are from overseen by the fair food program in Florida. But otherwise, it's extremely difficult to find any sort of domestic labeling program for labor conditions and labor rights. Um, And I think it's largely because, as um, I think Angela pointed out, so far consumers haven't defined the workers' conditions as something that's important to them, right? They care about the conditions that the animals experienced while they were being raised and they care about the environment and I think we need to think a lot deeper about what does it mean when the people growing our food and processing the animals are, are experiencing the conditions they are. So I think you know, I wish I could say here's a list of foods that and companies that should be supported, and we're just not there yet. And the way we get there is through consumer demand. So I think, you know, people listening in should certainly build more awareness, and one of the ways to start doing that is check out the website of the Food Chain Workers Alliance. It's a national coalition of worker organizations in the food industry, um, and you can start to learn about conditions of workers, and you can learn about campaigns that are happening around the country.
2: Yeah, Maggie, thank you for answering that note. Yeah, Sarah, go ahead.
4: Oh yeah, no, I think that it's, as both Angela and Maggie pointed out, it's, of course, important for listeners to be concerned and aware of the labor conditions in various uh, food industries. But it's also very important for listeners to support legislation that can really benefit low-wage workers. Um, so the law that um, is being proposed in New York State, for example, to make sure that farm workers enjoy the same protections as workers in most other industries, um, the laws that are being proposed across the nation to try to dismantle this legacy of agricultural exceptionalism, and also um, reforms that would provide undocumented workers with a path towards legal status, because that will help eliminate one of the um, key ways that workers are often exploited in these industries. So workers can, of course, vote with their pocketbook, and they can also um, vote and participate in important democratic action to ensure that food workers are supported.
2: I think that's all we have time today. Thank you all three for joining me today.
3: Thanks, Laurel.
2: Thanks so Thank much. Thank you. This is Meant to be on Heritage Radio Network. We'll be back next week.
6: Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org.